and so, so I'm going to talk to you this morning a little bit about Daniel. But really what today is is an intro to our next series on the book of Daniel, and the series is called Living in Exile. Everybody say, Living in Exile. Living in Exile. And we're going to look at how Daniel and his friends lived in a culture that was not their own, in a culture that was directly opposed to theirs, and what that means for us. And so, uh, so we're going to learn a lot over the next few weeks, and I really want you to make this a priority because I have a feeling that this particular series is going to be really pivotal in the life of our church. God has us in a direction and the vision through our history, we've always believed in the presence of God, that relationships are everything, and that the mission of God is critical, and that it is what we're doing together as a family of believers. That's what's led to three different communities meeting in different regions in Austin, and we have a vision to have at least 10 over the next 10 years. And so I, I, I believe that vision means we're going to have to really grapple with what it means to live in this culture, to be part of this culture, and yet to bring the message of life and love, the work of Christ, into uh, the, the surrounding neighbors and community in which we live. And so, so we're going we're gonna to talk about this, and I want you to look at Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, and let's pray over it. Father, as we read this scripture, let it come alive, we pray. Would you let it reverberate within us? Let it illuminate our minds, our hearts. Lord, and then would you follow that up with great grace so that we could obey and we could follow what you're saying to us. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. The scripture says in Daniel 1.1, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men, without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. There it is, ladies. That's the definition. That's what you're looking for. You're thinking to yourself, there aren't any of those in Austin. Gentlemen, this is why we're going through the book of Daniel. We're going to learn how to do this. Going to learn how to be these kind of men, all right? And, uh, and so th this, this is a description of Daniel and his friends. And so he was, he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years. And after they were to enter, after that, they were enter the king's service. And among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. Now let me just give you the backstory. It's 605 BC. Nebuchadnezzar has taken over, made a deal essentially with the king of Judah, and it is beginning the season of exile within the scriptures, the season of captivity 
that the God's people were warned about. And so Nebuchadnezzar is taking over and there's an exchange of people and they start to bring people into Babylon and, and they begin to spread them out and they begin to, to, to make them become part of the culture of Babylon. And I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine that you're a young Jewish boy or a young Jewish girl, and suddenly you're, you're about 13 or 15 years old, somewhere in there, and you're plucked out of your culture, out of your community. You're ripped out of your upbringing and taken out of the comforts of your family, and you're shipped off to this foreign and hostile country of Babylon. Now, Babylon, all through the Bible, is an archetype. There's a, there's a picture it's a type and a shadow for paganism, for pride and idolatry. It's, it's opulent wealth and materialism, sexual immorality. It's, it had brutal leaders and kings, and, and it, it was, had a history of violence. This is what it's known for. This is what it stands for, actually, in the scriptures as you go through the story of the Bible. And so think in, think in terms of being shipped off to this foreign country and you're forced to enter a three-year culture-creating, retraining, reforming, brainwashing, indoctrination program. That's what's happening to Daniel, and that's what it means to be exiled. That's what it means to be exiled. I want to recommend a book to you that I'm reading and that, that I, I, I encourage you to read along with me. I'm going to bring in other voices to this series because I think what I'm going to say, I want you to hear it from others, not just from me. As we read through the scriptures, there's a book called The Church in Exile, which is um, written by Lee Beach. It's called Living in Hope After Christendom. And here's what he says. He says, exile is the experience of knowing that one is an alien and perhaps even in a hostile environment where the dominant values run counter to one's own. This sense of exile is experienced by anyone who feels alienated, cast adrift, or marginalized by their inability or unwillingness to conform to the tyranny of majority opinion. Simply put, Edward Said writes that exile is the perilous territory of not belonging. I want you to think about this because even though you and I have not been picked up, plucked out of our family and placed in a hostile foreign country. The reality is the country in which we live has changed. And there is a shift that has happened. It's a shift that some of us are aware of. Others of us are trying to figure out how we fit into the current culture. But we need to all get on the same page with this really well-known pastor and author, John Tyson. He planted a church several years ago in New York City. He says there are three major cultural shifts that are happening for God's people. Number one is from majority to minority in our country. From a majority to a minority. We, it used to be that our point of view was sort of the majority point of view. That the Judeo-Christian ethic that we held was just part of the landscape of our culture. And, and I reject the notion, just to be clear, I reject the notion that we were designed to be a Christian nation. We were not. If you read carefully the, the Constitution and the, the founding fathers and how they framed government, what they were concerned about was one religion dominating being enforced by the government. That's what they were concerned about. And so... 
they created a government that would allow, that would give rights to people to worship as they wanted to. They actually designed a pluralistic society. It just so happened, now you have to understand, it just so happened that most of them had a Judeo-Christian foundation in their life and in their own history. But some of them make, I mean, don't get confused here, they weren't all believers. They had a Judeo-Christian worldview, but many of them were deists, Many of them were agnostics. There were secular ideas that became part of the landscape, even pagan ideas, and, and it just, it became the United States of America. But we are wrong if we misunderstand this and how we live in our country. In fact, the, the fastest growing segment of the population, the fastest growing segment of the religious population, of religion in America, as they measure it, is something called the nuns. None. Not with a habit and a caller and a, never mind, not enough Catholics in the room. So, um, the, I'm not talking about a nun, I'm talking about an N-O-N-E-S. I'm talking about people that identify themselves, they self-identify as non-religious. They are not religiously affiliated with anything. That's the fastest growing segment of our religious population. And I think what it is, is just, it's young people and it's others who have gained the courage now that our culture has shifted, that when they used to just put on a form Christian or Protestant or when, they, when there was measurements or, or Catholic, they now have gained the courage to say, no, I'm not affiliated with any kind of religion. If you, if you went to a coffee shop on your way to church this morning, and you stopped by there and you went in and you ordered your coffee and, and you, you looked at the barista and you had a little conversation and, and she said, uh, so what are you doing today? And if you would have said, I'm going to Zilker with some friends, it's going to be a great time. Or, or, or you said, I'm going with my girlfriends and we're going to have some mimosas and it's going to be awesome. Or, <laughs> or if you said, I'm going to the lake and we're, we're going to do yoga. They would, they would have been like, awesome, that is so cool, right? But if you would have said, well, I'm going to church because every Sunday I meet with some other Jesus followers from around Austin and we gather together to worship God and declare that Jesus is Lord over our city and over our country. If you said that, you would have heard silence most likely you would have gotten maybe a, oh. And then you would have said, can you make that with soy milk, please? What you, ha you and I have to come to grips with is people don't see you and I the same way that they used to. And this is challenging for us. This is one of the most difficult things. We've moved from majority to minority. We've, number two, John Tyson says we've moved from the center to the fringe. From the center to the fringe. If you think about how our government was framed and, and forged, if you think about all our higher learning institutions, they all came from a Judeo-Christian foundational model or a worldview. The, the pastors in our nation were people of prominence. They were people who were part of the respected group of people who led the country. Now, I have to say, when people ask me what I do, I try not to say pastor. At least not right at first, because I get the, uh, oh, that's nice. And then they turn. 
I'm thinking, I, I, I haven't done this yet, but I was thinking about trying out a new answer. I, I read about a guy, a pastor that does this. So what do you do for a living? He says, I work for a global nonprofit enterprise that provides hospitals and homeless shelters and hospices and marriage programs, orphanages and life skills training and educational programs for every part of the world. If, you, if I said that to somebody, they'd be like, what? That is awesome. I submit to you that we've forgotten who we are, maybe. And we have moved in our culture from the center, from being part of the power brokers to the fringe. Culture now really wants nothing to do with our point of view and it's 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 kind of been turned on its head like like the framers of the constitution they they there was a letter written by thomas jefferson it's not even in the constitution it says it talks about the wall of separation between church and state that wall of separation was designed as a talking point to make sure that the government wasn't too involved or at all involved in religious affairs and the dangers of that, but it's been turned upside down on its head now to mean that people of faith shouldn't ever be involved in leading or government. I want you to understand you're moving to the fringe. I want you to realize that people still don't care what you believe. I mean, you can believe in um, super Jedi ninja spirituality, or you can believe in the spaghetti monster, or you can believe in Jesus. It's okay, but they don't want you in, in too much leadership position and they don't want to really know about it. They want you to practice it privately. And, and so there's a, there's a challenge we have. And, and Lee Beach, I'll just quote him again. It says, in the post-Christian revolution, it's fair to say that the church is one of the fo those former power brokers who once enjoyed a place of influence at the cultural table but has been chased away from its place of privilege and is now seeking to find where it belongs amid the ever-changing dynamics of contemporary culture. Number three, we've moved from, we've moved from well-respected to disrespected. As recently in the 1990s, Christians were thought of as being part of society with, with positive social contexts but now they are not respected. We've come, become like oddities. The way that we deal with sexuality, the way we think about it, the, 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 we're almost like a unicorn, like, uh, oh, you don't have sex before marriage? Oh, I've heard about you, but uh, yeah, I don't know if I've ever seen one. <laughs> like a cute myth that has existed somehow in our culture. We're known now is the counterpart to ISIS. That, that we're the fundamentalists on the Christian side, abortionist murders, we're lumped into all these people. We're, we're lumped into the people that killed the people in Orlando in that bar. We're lumped in with all the crazies. It's crazy. The, the, we now, in culture's mind, in many ways represent the low moral ground. It used to be that we had a higher morality and people would at least 
they would respect the fact that we believe these things and then try to adhere to them. But in a shocking twist in our culture, we now become the ones that are immoral in their eyes. Oh, you, you, you believe that it's one man and one woman for marriage and that that should be forever? You're, that's, that's weird. That's not only weird. I, I think that's dangerous. In fact, I think you might be an intolerant bigot. Everything's been turned on its head. I mean, the scriptures are not respected as a resource. The definition of who we are as God's people, if you even in any way begin to bring in the idea in the conversation, the idea of a universal truth or an absolute truth, you are crazy. You're, you're nuts. You're out of touch. And the negative's perspective is about Jesus followers who are thought of as once kind of, it was kind of weird but toler tolerable, now are moving to a place of being disrespected. So much has changed so fast. How did we get here? The church, the church in exile, this book that I'm recommending to you, it, it defines three ways. One was secularism, right? Secularism is the rise of secularism. You, you just think about the 500 years ago as this nation began to be settled and all the things that were happening around there, it was, it was not a question of whether or not people believed in God. It was just a certainty. That was how culture began to, um, began to inhabit uh, this place. And, and so people were moving then through a process over the last few hundred years with skepticism, cynicism, the enlightenment period, science. I want you to understand I am not saying, and neither is Lee Beach saying, that science is the opposite of religion. My opinion is that science and God go together like nothing else. Like better than peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> like there's, like what, the more you, <laughs> it's an interesting idea. Abortion rates have gone down over the last several years, even though they're still high. They have gone down. And you know what has driven them down? Not our moral argument. The thing that's driven them down is 4D imaging, science, technology. It's driven the abortion rates down because people get to see that beating heart. They get to see that there's a formed child there, and it shocks them to reality. part of the, it's we we have to we have to understand this the secularism that has risen around us there is a, a mindset out there that says oh you're a christian oh you believe in these things well then that you're you're like you don't even make sense we've we've become scientific in our culture you know we understand how gravity works now we understand how physics work and you still believe the bible that's crazy don't you know we're kind of beyond that? Don't you know all these fables and myths can be explained now? There's a pollster named Michael Adams, and he describes it this way, a winding journey. This is how Western uh, European history has happened, a winding journey in Western European history from the death of God and the traditional notions of family and community to a highly individualistic population 
focused on personal control and autonomy to a new embryonic but fast-growing sense of human interconnectedness with technology and nature. This is the world we live in. Number two is affluence. I don't want to bog down too much here. Number two is affluence. Since World War II, post-World War II, we have just continued, our economy has continued to chug along and to grow at incredible uh, rates. And, and, and our culture has been filled with our, all that we really could ever want. Some things the world, or the Bible would call worldly pleasures, right, have become the dominant driving force in our economies. And, and, and we, we can get everything we want. We, we could really... Um, take advantage of all that like never before in our history although although people I think it's true that the middle class is shrinking right we still live in this nation where where there's less and less spiritual hunger more ways to medicate and become distracted it's affluence three is multiculturalism multiculturalism is not a bad thing actually it can be quite good but multiculturalism is just a fact if you were at some point a, kind of a middle income um, Judeo-Christian worldview white person, <laughs> your view was the dominant view. And so you could choose the foods you want and choose the fashion you want and, it, and our country reflected it. But after World War II, the immigra immigration started changing. It started coming from, from Asia and India and, uh, and south, even south of our borders and, and immigration changed and now more people are here representing all kinds of different ideas foods, fashion, cultures, you are now, especially if you're a white person, you are, the, you are not the dominant point of view. And, you, and my, thing is, my thing is, we just need to wake up and realize that. That as God's people, we may be living in a country we don't even recognize because the, the different religions that are represented don't even understand what we think should be normal please don't misunderstand me I'm not I'm not saying anything is wrong with multiculturalism what I'm saying is the landscape the spiritual topography of our nation has changed Christianity is a smaller segment than ever it is now a minority it is a minority opinion and not just an opinion it is disregarded it is disrespected it is not embraced. I don't know if you've ever heard of something called the Overton Window. It's political theory. It's a really, like, generalization of how a people will respond to a politician's idea, right? So he throws the idea out there, and how's it going to work? And Joseph P. Overton kind of... Uh, originated it and so here's the process here's how it works a process of which by which a new idea comes into play what happens is it's thrown out there and it goes from unthinkable to radical unthinkable to radical to acceptable to sensible finally to popular and then finally it makes its way to policy. It's the Overton window and how ideas come into a culture. 
So think about that. So many things just a few years ago were unthinkable. I mean, it's not that long ago people used to pray in our schools, but that was outlawed. And then there's followed, and I'm, I'm not saying that was right to force anybody to pray. Actually, I don't think that's right. But what I think followed was a, a, a pushing of prayer out of every public interaction. Out of all society, we don't, we want you to, you can pray in private, but don't, don't pray where anybody else can hear you, and certainly not a public event. I think it, is, it was shocking to some people that gay marriage is legal, but that is the landscape upon which we live. The culture wars, listen, the culture wars are over, and we got slaughtered. We got destroyed. We lost the definition of marriage. And so, and so I, we should never, never be angry and respond in our culture to people who are on the other side of the cultural argument. We should never demonize those people or angrily fight with them in a way that is not in, uh, represent the, the love of Christ in our lives. These are, these are not right for God's people, but here's what happened. The gospel got politicized. And, the, and evangelicals started to become synonymous with Republican. And any time, you can look throughout history, any time that religion and politics get mixed up together, they get in bed together, the, the result is not good. It always destroys a culture. Listen, God's people, we live in a culture that we have to, we have to wake up to and then we have to make decisions about our culture. What are we going to do? What are you going to do? I know a whole bunch of you are sick of me like talking about loving your neighbor. Like over the last 18 months, I've had like several series on it. And I'm like, come on, you got to love your neighbor. You got to love where you live. You got to serve their needs. You're like, okay, we get it, Pastor Ross. Stop it. Stop. But you know, you know why I've been doing it? Because I understand the landscape that we're living on. And civil discourse is gone in our society right now. I mean, the election thing, the frenzy, it, it, you can't even, you can't be friends with anybody on Facebook who disagrees with you. It's that kind of mentality that we have. We can't have actual dialogue, which, you know what that means? That means we can't even share the good news of Jesus with anybody. You know what we have to do before we get to good news? You gotta, share, you gotta restore civil discourse. You gotta restore actual dialogue with people that's friendly. It's interesting, Jesus actually taught his people to do this when he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Don't yell at them and demonize them. Love them. It's getting really quiet in this Methodist church here. It's like, I don't know. Here's the good news. The good news is this is not new. <laughs> this is not new. This has happened before. God's people, the metaphor for exile cuts across the entire biblical story. Adam and Eve became exiles of the garden. Noah became an exile of his own culture. Abraham was sent to a country that he didn't even know where God was sending him. Daniel is what we're going to study over the next several weeks. Esther, Nehemiah, Jesus himself was an exile, a refugee of sorts. 
Peter, he talks about it in his letter. He talks about being a foreigner and in exile. First Peter 1 Peter 1.1, look at what it says. This letter is for, from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Look, he, he knew there were, they were exiles. God's chosen people. Those living in exile. Verse 17 says, so you must live in reverent fear of him during your time as foreigners in this land. Chapter 2, verse, verse 11. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and, and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Look at the language he's using. Today there's so much pressure, social and emotional, to conform to the tyranny of the majority. I think that seeing ourselves like exiles will give us greater compassion for those who have felt that way under our majority rule. I think we, we got we to ask the question, what are we going to do? Are we going to act like everybody else acts? Are we going to vote like everybody else votes? Are we going to talk like everybody else talks? Are we going to think like everybody else thinks? What are we going to do? Peter continues to say it in his letter as he, as he introduces it. I want you to read 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9, right? It's right there. I want you to read that this week. That's your homework. <laughs> Not used to getting homework from me. That's your homework. Read the first chapter of Peter. You'll see that God is, is saying through him, look, you don't have to despair even though you feel like you're being closed in on, even though you feel like you don't belong, even though you feel like a minority, you're in good company. And, and, and if you will recognize it, and if you'll allow God to work in you, it, he will offer you something that is of greater worth than you can even imagine. So how do you live in this new normal? I want to say there's two postures I want you to avoid as your pastor. Number one is called separatism. Separatism. I grew up a little bit in this environment of separatists. You know, we kind of created our own little bubbles of which to function in. I, listen, people, I didn't go to a movie till I was 19 years old. I didn't, we didn't go to a movie house because <laughs> movie houses were sinful. And so, and so the first movie I ever saw was Back to the Future. <laughs> it was a good one. It ruined me for a lot, lot of years. Like, I thought all movies were that good. But, <laughs> but, but, uh, but there is, there, is a, there is a tendency to separate. There's a continue to have a turtle-like posture, like just get away. The Amish have sort of settled in on a, a, a season of, of life and industry where they said, nope, this is where it stops and we're not going to go any further in technology. It, when, you, when you become a separatist, when you become separated too much so, what ha happens is you become like a fundamentalist you you push all the way to the extreme and and it happens sometimes without our even knowing like it's happened with a lot of big churches they've created all their own stuff like a a, a big church christian culture they like here's your christian t-shirt here's your christian radio station here's your christian experiences it like for number one let's just make it clear t-shirts cannot become christians there's no such thing as Christian music. There are only Christians playing music. We got to make sure we're not living in a bubble of our choosing. We have been able to live like we wanted to. 
the answer is not for us to become separated from, from our culture. We have to live in our culture. And we can't be legalists, angry, political, moralistic. You get that stuff in you, it will make horrible religion out of you and it will destroy you. The other extreme is syncretism. Syncretism means you synchronize. The word comes from a, a synchronization of your worldview with others' worldviews. You look at Paul's letters all through the New Testament, he was dealing with syncretism. He was dealing with pagan practices and, and, and God's desire and worldview and his practices for his people. And so he, they, as they came to Jesus, they would integrate and synchronize their practices and habits together. And he, he kept telling them, challenging them, and so most people in this room are probably more guilty of the second than the first. That you've adopted, you've adopted the way your culture works and you've taken it as your own. And so now what's happening whenever that happens is you start to disappear. You start to disappear as God's people because you've now, you're now functioning just like everybody else. So you've disappeared. You're not holding out hope None of us are being persecuted, per se, in this culture yet. But you are having to deal with the, the struggle of a new identity within our cultural landscape. So how do we live on this knife edge between separatism and synchronism? Here's what Daniel said in chapter 9. You'll see it in your message notes. Here's what he said that he got some answers. He started, to, he started to try to figure out how to live, and he looked to Jeremiah. Look what he said. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting, sackcloth and ashes. He was looking to the book of Jeremiah because Jeremiah wrote to the first wave of exiles, the first wave that had gone. Here's what Jeremiah wrote to them, Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is incredible that Jeremiah told the exiles how to live here. And if we look at this and we begin to outline it, we'll find that number one, he said, I want you to perpetuate your family. Listen, there is, there's no better disciple making than happens in your home. And the problem with most of our homes is they're splintering. There's a, there's a, there's a divorce thing going on in our country and it's like we, we can't, we can't get a hold of it. We've got to recapture what it means to raise kids, what live as a family. And you, the only way we can do that is I think the church of Jesus Christ has to model what it means to live as a family. 
And I, I, think, I think we can't be afraid to bring, bring kids into this world. People are like, I can't bring any children into this world. No, actually, God says just the opposite. I want you to be fruitful, and I want you to invest in the people that are living in your home. And I want you to develop them and reproduce your own convictions in them. The principle of first mention is an idea in our kids' lives. Not just, like, like anything, and the way it goes is, the first thing you mention to your kid is not just information, it's actually a moment. Like when they're young and they need to learn about sensitive topics, the principle of first mention comes into play. Because they're, they're, the first mention of whatever topic it is is not just informative, it's foundational to how they see everything which you can imagine why hearing about lots of topics on the playground for the first time would be bad for a child. So here it is. The second thing Jeremiah says is participate in your community. He doesn't say, he doesn't say opt out of everything. He says raise crops, share with others, live as part of the fabric of community. Share, buy, sell, Engage, don't give up, meet with your neighbors, invest in the culture that you live in. Be part of it. Be part of it, but be a light in the darkness. Be a, a light in, in what God has given you. Be part of the landscape of the culture. And, and that's hard to do. What's going to happen is we're going to look at, at Daniel to figure out how we can do this even better. But you have to change the whole goal of today's message, you know what it is? To convince you that you're not in Kansas anymore. Because some of you still think you are. And you're living in a way that absorbs all the cultural elements that are around you. And you're not willing to move forward as a believer, as a, a child of God in a way that shares your faith with others because you're too afraid of it. You're too afraid of being lumped into the crazies. God has a different way. He has a different path. If you notice, it says, this is what the Lord said in verse 10. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Have you ever heard that verse? Okay, for I know, it's a common verse. Lots of people like this verse. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for, what is it? Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. You know what that means in our modern context? Like, I'm going to pray that, and then next week, I get the awesome job. This was written. Jeremiah writes it knowing there's 70 years. A whole generation is going to come and go. A whole generation. This is the context of... Now, you've you got to understand this. God has plans for you, and you've got to discover them in this land of exile. And then you will call on me, he says, and come and pray to me, and we'll listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Third thing he says is pray for the peace and prosperity of your city, seeking the healing and renewal of your city. Pray for the peaceful existence and prosperity of your city. Now, imagine how, imagine how crazy, how transformational that idea is for a a group of exiles. You want us to pray for Babylon? You want us to pray for the peace and prosperity of this horrible city? Listen, you got to turn your thinking around about how God works. God wants to work in what has been termed a creative minority. Creative minority. It was a 
term made famous by a, a historian named Arnold Toynbee. And he coined the term creative minorities because he kind of started to study the Jewish people. And it's incredible to see what's happened to the Jewish people. They have been maligned and persecuted and executed over and over again throughout our history, throughout all history, and still they survive, they thrive. Think about it. There are no more Hittites. There are no more Assyrians. There are no more of these people groups that were so powerful in those days, but there are still Jewish people, but they have figured out a way not only to survive, but to thrive in every culture they've been part of, even though they've been persecuted. Jewish descent is less than 2% in our nation. 1.5 or something like that. You Google Jewish people in Hollywood, every head of every production house, I mean, they're all, they are, you know what they did? They are people that have decided to become influencers. You know what some of our problem is as the people of God in our country is for many decades we sent all of our best and brightest to Bible school. Instead of sending them to film school. Do you, under, do you understand what that means? That means we, we the, best, the best guy in the youth group, the best girl, the one who loved Jesus the most. We sent him to Bible school to be pastors instead of out into the world to love Jesus in the middle of the world and to make a case for their own convictions. This is, this is, what, this is the world we're living in now. And the only question is, will you admit it? Will you come to it? Will, will you realize that it's not cool to follow Jesus anymore? That coolness is not the goal in a city that's so cool. This is our problem. In a city that's so cool, we, so cool, we have to own the fact that we are Jesus followers. I'm not actually cool. and I'm not normal. I follow Jesus. You're weird. And you're going to have to own it. And you probably, listen, some of you may need to grieve because you've lost something. Some of you are at the age where you're still having to grieve because you've lost something that you thought still you had hope that the next election would bring the turn, the change. I think we're all convinced that that's not going to happen. Exile is where the people of God tend to do better at following Jesus, actually. Exile is where the people of God come together as one. Exile is where the miraculous can occur. Exile is a place, so listen, you can be a minority. That's your last fill in the blank. You can be part of the minority living in a country whose religion, culture, and legal system are not your own. And yet sustain your identity, live your faith, contribute to the common good, exactly as Jeremiah said. It isn't easy. It demands a complex finessing of identities. It involves a willingness to live in a state of cognitive dissonance sometimes. It isn't for the faint-hearted, but it is creative. This is what Jonathan Sachs says on creative minorities. Look it up. You can Google it. It's a fantastic article. It's very interesting. The big idea of the book of Daniel, where we're going the next several weeks, is the point of the book of Daniel is how to live as a creative minority, but not just to survive, but to thrive, to adapt, to innovate, to redefine, and to recreate a new way of living to our core. What can emerge from exile? I don't know. But I think we're going to find out. 
I want you to close your eyes and I want you to bow your head and I want you to, I want you to think about what God is saying to you. What is he asking of you? What is he calling you to? Maybe you found yourself of living in a bubble and you're not actually willing to meet your neighbors because you're just, it's so inconvenient and they don't, they don't think like I do and they don't believe like I do. I just, I, I don't have time for that. Maybe that's you. Today's your day to repent. Maybe, maybe you're in the other side of the equation and you're like, you're like you've disappeared as, as a person who follows Jesus. And you no longer really stick out. There's no light around you. You're just blending in and you're disappearing. This is your moment. This is your day to repent, to come to God and just say, I'm, I'm so sorry. I see it now. I recognize it and I want to change. I want to do something different. I want to respond differently. Would you please come into my life? That's what I want. Wherever you are on the landscape, the wherever, wherever, wherever you're coming from, maybe it's just a moment where you're realizing, I want to come to Jesus because what you're talking about, like I don't get it exactly, but there's something tugging at my own heart here. And it is supernatural and it's spiritual. I want to learn more. Listen, I want to invite you to be part of the family, to let Jesus come into your life. We're going to come to the Lord's table. I know it's a little late today, but I... I think this is a pivotal moment for us in our church, in our history. And I, we're going to come to the Lord's table. We're going to take just a few more moments. And I, because I want you to, to come to a place where you have provision. You can't do this on your own. I can't do this on my own. We can't just hunker down. We've got to have real solutions. And I believe that the source of those solutions is Jesus himself. The bread represents his body, broken for our healing and for forgiveness of sins. The cup represents his blood, which was spilled for us to wash away every failure, every foolishness, every mistake. The miracle of the gospel is you get a brand new start today if you will embrace him. You will embrace him. I want you to come to this table because Jesus set the table. We practice open communion at one chapel. And that means that it's not about church. It's not about religion. It's not, it's not about belonging to a church. It's about a relationship with Jesus himself. And if you want that, you come to this table. Because he said it. He set this table. If you feel uncomfortable for any reason, please don't feel pressure. Just walk through the line and you can pass by the table as we go through, okay? So let's pray over this, Father. We thank you for speaking to us. Jesus, we ask you to reveal yourself. Holy Spirit, we pray for your presence to fill us with grace and strength and courage, bravery, wisdom. 